Welcome to The Rural Rockstar, a podcast dedicated to empowering rural women with the tools and inspiration to transform their lives and businesses from the inside out. I share my journey of Survive to Thrive in life and business, and I show what it takes to be an entrepreneur. I also interview other rockstar women from around the world to inspire you to do it too. My mission is to empower the next generation of rural changemakers to show up and be the leaders we need. I'm Katrina, your rockstar host. Let's rock. In today's episode, I interview Fleur McDonald, and I just wanted to give everyone a little heads up that we do go pretty in-depth in talking about domestic violence, and we also talk about suicide. And so if anyway, if in any way this is triggering for you at all, please do consider reaching out to Beyond Blue or Lifeline or any of the support networks that are available to you. And yeah, just know that it, it can these these topics and these conversations can be quite hard and quite challenging. I think they're important conversations to have, but just be aware that they 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 are quite heavy and we do go pretty in depth in this episode. So just to be aware of that and I hope that this conversation is helpful for you in some way as well. Hello, welcome back to the Rural Rockstars. I'm your host, Katrina Myers, and today I'm joined by Fleur McDonald. Hello, Fleur. Hello, Katrina. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's lovely to have you join me. Fleur and I we were just chatting before we jumped on about how we used to know each other, you know, vaguely on Twitter back in the early days when Twitter was fun, um, before it got <laughs> a bit crazy. So, and I, I, I remember talking to Georgie Somerset, who I interviewed earlier as well, and saying that we used to love interacting and um, being involved in Twitter in those early days. And so I, I remember Fleur from then and Fleur has gone on, well, I mean, I'm not sure how many books you're up to at that stage, but has now written 18 novels, um, having been a, growing up in the country and then going on to write some fabulous um, rural novels featuring what we love is strong female characters, many of them, and then her latest book is Deception Creek, which we'll dive into hearing all about today. And Fleur's also done some incredible work to set up uh, organization, the organization DV Assist, and is very passionate about, um, I guess, advocating for women and advocating against for well against domestic abuse and domestic violence. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about all of that. And obviously, very passionate about female role models and female leaders and all that sort of stuff for rural Australia, which we just love, and it's all the things that I love to talk about. So. Very much looking forward to hearing your story and diving into all of that today, Fleur. Thank you so much for being here. So I always love to start with how did you end up where you are now in Esperance and WA? <laughs> what what got you there? <laughs> oh, well, this is one of those, uh, I'm a big quotes girl. I love a good quote. And uh, this is one that says, um, my life didn't go the way I expected and that's okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, yeah, I did. I grew up in a little town called Oruru uh, and mum and dad had a fuel distributorship over there and Nana and Papa were north on a station north of um, north of Oruru, north of Carrick. And I spent a lot of time up there as a kid and loved farming. I loved the space and the sheep work and everything. And then I uh, got hoisted off down to boarding school, which was my least favourite um, part of my life, I think. And I think that just in um, really cemented in me that I wanted to work on the land. But at the same time, I had a real flair and love for storytelling. And I toyed with the idea of being a bit of a, um, not a bit of a, um, a, a rural journalist and a physiotherapist for a little while, but 
you know, you had to be really clever to be a physio and I wouldn't have ever had the marks for that. So, so what happened was that I left school at, in year 12 and went and tried my hardest to find a job as a driller or a station farmhand or, or something and I found it really hard in South Australia. South Australia is a, um, a very, obviously a very old and well-established uh, state when it comes to uh, farming and agriculture and there were some real strong mindsets there that were very hard to break when it came to letting girls uh, work on farms that weren't their families or, you know, their husbands. And um, I was very lucky in, in the process to get a job with uh, Tim Lewis who was running managing um, one Jarabi for Perry Gunner, Dana Meningi. And I can remember walking into his office very clearly and just being, so I'd driven like the six or seven hours, whatever it was from Oruru down to Meningi, and walked in with my resume. And the first thing he said to me was, is this all you've done? And I was gutted, you know, like at, at 17, uh, you know, I had everything on my resume. You know, I'd been fencing, I'd been landmarking, I knew about shearing, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I was gutted. And then he said to me, oh, yes, it's one of those things, isn't it? It's a circle where if you can't get a job, you can't get the experience and, you know, and it just keeps going round and round. He said, so I'll give you a job. And that was, um, you yeah, know, that was the start of getting into into farming. And I, I wanted to go to Marcus Oldham to study farm management. And so I needed two years of working um, as a farmhand before I could, you know, I could actually go to Marcus Oldham. So um, I did 12 months with Tim down at Wanderabi and then came across to WA and worked on a farm over here for uh, another 12 months and then went off to Marcus. And I changed from doing uh, farm management to agribusiness um, because that was only a one-year course. And then ended up back here again working um, with my ex-husband on, on a farm and uh, buying land and doing what, what we needed to do. And, and then uh, I think 2007 I wrote, started to write my first book um, and in amongst all of that, you know, there was a terminally ill mother-in-law that I was looking after. Both of my kids had uh, disabilities that needed therapy um, intensive therapy across the board and then uh, about seven and a half years ago oh, I knew that I wasn't very happy in my marriage and about seven and a half years ago um, we I left and moved into Esperance and now I live just on the outskirts of Esperance that's a very long-winded story about where I am here now but <laughs> but um, yeah I have um, I've uh, ended up living in Esperance which yeah, it's funny. It doesn't actually suit me that well because I don't like towns. So I've got five acres, but it's still not quite big enough. <laughs> you like bigger by the sounds of it, yes. No, I love that story. I, like I could listen to people tell their stories all day about how they got to where they are now, absolutely, like it's the gold of life really. So I love hearing all of that and it's certainly an interesting story as well. So so then what sort of led there? I mean, you've written 18 novels, which is amazing. That's like more than one a year by the sounds of it, or is it one a year? I, I uh, So when I actually moved to town, I I didn't have any skills to do anything. I'm sure I could have, but, you know, at the time I, I was very browbeaten and I didn't have any self-confidence. And the only thing I knew other than that, other than farming, was to write these books. And I think I had, I don't know, five or six out by that stage and, and I knew that I could make a living 
off them. Um, but, yeah, so then I went to Alan and Unwin and I said, you know, can, can I write two books a year? And I've got such a great relationship with those guys and, and wonderful publishers and, and everything that they sort of said, yep, if that's what you want to do, yeah. And, and I thought, well, you know, I've got all this time. So, and I was very, um, very flighty when I first came to town. You know, there was so much to, to I couldn't settle. It was a really weird time in my life and um yeah so to sit down and write these two books a year grounded me and and made me I had purpose and I had meaning and and you need that uh in anything that you do so yeah two two books a year oh it's amazing it's amazing and so do you draw on like a lot of your personal experiences tell us where you get like I mean most artists will say there's a lot of sort of personal experience in it, but obviously it's there, is it your journey and your experience that's forming the stories or how, how do you keep so much inspiration too of all these books? Well, look, I think, um, you know, the settings are certainly my inspiration. You know, I, I, know what it, I know what it's like to drive a baler or a header or, a, or a, you know, get in the sheep yards and drive sheep or work in the shearing shed. You know, like I know all of that. So that, yeah, I've done that for years and years and years and I, you so know, the settings um, are very... Um, very me, what I what I have experienced, but you know, there's lots of awful things that happen to these women in there, <laughs> and luckily I haven't experienced too many of them. But I guess um, what what I do with these girls is I take them and give them and, and throw horrible things at them, and they come out stronger at the other end. And some of my friends say to me, you know, these girls are you, but I make these girls much stronger than what I've ever been and what I'm capable of, and you know, what I aspire to be, I suppose. Um, and you can do that with fiction. You can muck around with them and do whatever you, whatever you like, uh, and make them who you like. So, and they don't always do what I want them to do. That's the that's the funny thing. You know, when you're writing, or when I'm writing, at least I spend a lot of time in my subconsciousness, and sometimes I don't even realise I've written something, and I'll go back and read it, and I'll go, oh, did I write that? Oh, I must have written that because nobody else wrote it. But I do. I spend a lot of time in my subconscious when I'm writing, and so you know, these characters go and do that. They have their own lives and their own um, reactions to things that I don't necessarily give them. They just sort of come out. Oh, I love that. That is so cool. That's very weird. I know. I, I just, but I don't know how else to explain it. It's, I know it sounds weird. <laughs> oh, it doesn't sound weird at all. I love it. And a lot of the work that I do is like exploring the subconscious mind and all that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's cool that you dive into that to get your, sort of inspiration the stories and sometimes like how cool is it that you don't even know where it came from it's oh that's good sometimes <laughs> you read it and just be like oh don't know what that what was that about <laughs> yeah that's right there's a there's a few things that sometimes well in this interception creek I I um I can't tell you what I did because it's going to spoil everything but at the end there is a uh there is a incident that I knew I just had to put in there and the amount of people that have just gone, are you sure you need to put that in there? I go, yeah, I absolutely am. This is about the gasp factor. This is not about happy endings. This is about the gasp factor. And there's been quite a few people comment on that. But it just had to happen. So, yeah. Yes. Well, and that's it. Like often, you know, probably we tailor things to kind of think what people need, but sometimes you just have to do it. That's your creative licence, isn't it? You're writing the book. It's, it's got yeah. to be there. 
Yeah, but I also know that um, people expect a certain type of book from me as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so that that's a, not an expectation, but they, um, well, I don't feel the expectation, but I do all, I, in every aspect of my life for the whole time I've been alive, I have pushed the boundaries and I do exactly the same thing in the books. Oh, I love that too. It's like the, the the manifestation of you, you know, through the book. <laughs> cool. I love that. So Deception Creek is out um, right now, isn't it? Like as in? Yep, came out on Tuesday. Yep. Yeah, how exciting. So tell us more about, I mean, what can you tell us about the storyline without giving too much away in the interview? Because as you said, you don't want to like ruin it for people, but um, tell us. So it's a strong female character again. So tell yeah. us. Yeah, and look, I thought um, I thought writing Emma would be really easy. Uh, she's a divorced farmer, um, and she's uh, she's come on. So she was first a first responder to, or first on the scene of a really really tragic car accident early on in her career as an agronomist, and she it, that really shook her. And uh, so she ran home to where she felt safe. So she went back to the farm, which is Deception Creek. And um, so both of her parents are dead and, and she's working there with a, um, a lovely workman who she wouldn't be able to sort of cope without called Matt. And, uh, yeah, she's she's probably, oh, she's a bit younger than what I am, so I think she's in her early 40s. And, you know, she's got, I thought she'll be really easy to write. I'm going to throw all these emotions that I had when I got divorced at her and she can I'll, I'll know how she's going to react because I've been there I've done that anyway she had a completely different uh thought process on that she didn't react to half of the things that I thought the way that I thought she would she just went off on her own <laughs> and I was sort of left catching up writing what she was up to but it was quite funny because we had to I, there is some cyber crime in in this book as well and I had to research online dating now I've never been onto an online dating website I was asking loads of questions about it my kids who are 20 and 21 I'm sort of saying to them oh so who's been on tinder like can someone help me here like I need I need some help um and so we had some very hilarious and for my kids embarrassing conversations I'm sure and we did negotiate um, one particular dating website so I had both of the kids sitting with me when I was trying to do it and I'm going oh my god I want my email address I don't want to give my email Rochelle says put the email address in one I was like oh okay right and then I was like oh no they want my and I got to the end and I never, because with these dating websites, if you've never been on them, you can't see inside them. Like all you can see is this front page saying, do you want to sign up or log in? And it's like, but I want to see what's behind this so I can write about it. And anyway, so like I've got Rochelle sitting next to me and I said, I don't want to give them my phone number. And so then Rochelle just took over and, and put the phone number in. And then they sent me a code on my number. It's like, nah, uh, uh, delete delete block the number and shut the and shut the website down so I'm not brave enough to get onto the online dating sites even for research <laughs> oh so did you just make that bit up that I'm assuming what it's like on the other side <laughs> I found some more friends that have done it wow. <laughs> you, better, you better give me a blow-by-blow description of all of this because I'm not quite ready for that yet oh that's classic the research that you have to do for book writing it's so cool and it's so fascinating too to hear you talk about the process behind 
how you thought that Emma, the character, would respond to things, but then actually you get kind of led by what comes through for her. But like I find that really fascinating, that process for you. Yeah, and Joel was the same. So Joel and Emma actually, normally I would have just a really obviously female character in, in these in these Christmas books. Um, but Joel, when he came along, he was he was sort of really fighting for that lead character role. And um he was a and I had a lot of sympathy for Joel. I, I loved writing him. And he's he's an ex-crim and come back to Barker as a Again, you know, this is this uh, theme through the book about running home where you feel safe. And so he's come home uh, to to try and start again. When, and he knew it wasn't going to be easy coming home because, as we know, small country towns have long memories and sometimes they can hold grudges for even longer. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of these. So he knew that coming home wasn't going to be easy, but that was where he wanted to come. And, you know, Detective Dave and... Senior Constable Jack, they they knew that there was going to be some problems there as well. So you know, it's a bit about peacekeeping and um, and Dave, who has been a staple in in a lot of my books. You know, he um, he's out of his depth in some of in some of these investigations that we've got going on here, which is very unusual for him. And and the research, you know, it's, it's quite funny. So I've got a detective mate in Perth who used to head up the stock squad here in WA, and he, which is why my books are really authentic when it comes to investigation techniques and you know some of the store, some of the um, the crimes that turn up because you know my detective mate can can tell me those things. And I said to him one day, so what um, what does a body look like when it's been buried? in a shallow grave for like, I don't know, three weeks and then the wind uncovers it or, or something. And he said, go and buy a roast or pork chop actually, but a roast, I actually did a roast because it was bigger, um, and bury it in the backyard and then dig it up in three weeks' time and see what it looks like. That's <laughs> what your body will look like. Oh, yeah, fair enough, right? So off I went, did that. I had to, do, I had to bury it right out the back where... Um, so I've got I've got five acres here, and there and there is a like where the house is is sort of fenced off, so the dogs can roam around. I had to take it outside of the fence, so the dogs the dog- didn't pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, the lengths you have to go to for research. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The things we do that you wouldn't think of and imagine, and just to get that. Yeah, I guess that authenticity through it too so that you can really, like, live into it and feel what it feels like and all that kind of stuff. It's so fascinating. I love yeah. hearing about the process. I've interviewed a couple of other authors. One was Sophie Hansen who does, like, cookbooks and stuff, so a bit different. Yep. And then May Linnell who's written, um, yeah. she's up to her third or fourth novel now as well, and it's really yeah. fascinating to hear the process behind, yeah, the creativeness and how the ideas come about and and then, yeah, the process of it is it's so fascinating. so much and- in it. And it's funny because it's really probably been in the last, I don't know, well, I've been writing since 2009, so whatever that makes it years, um, and I reckon it's probably only been in the last maybe six years that that real marketing, getting to know the author, interview type things has been coming out. You know, 
the authors haven't been thought of or that you know you just get a book and you read the story and you go oh, yeah that was good but you don't really give a lot of thought to the author and you know since social media is really um taken off and you really do need to have a social media profile and and um, Maya in particular does hers beautifully she's um great a great marketer and you know th- that whole thing with um yeah with getting to know the authors and the person behind the book and that that's that's reasonably new it's when I say reasonably it's yeah it has been around for five or six years and there's always interviews with really big authors like JK Rowling's and you know Dan Brown and all of those fellas before all of this but you know the little writers like me and um you know the rural lit girls um yeah there's a real um yeah getting to know them now is is new and expected Mm, which is cool. Is that cool? Like, has that been, do you enjoy that side of it or has that been more? Yeah, I do. Yeah, COVID's really shows. I used to tour most years, um, or most books. Uh, and then, you know, COVID shows down. I went through a couple of years where I was probably home only once a month, um, mm-hmm. you know, for any length of time um, throughout the whole years. And and it was, it was really tiring, but I loved it. And I saw so much country. I love getting to speak to readers and, hear their stories and, you know, look at their countryside and, you know, see where I can perhaps put that in a book, you know. Um, yeah, and getting to know getting to know readers, you'd get to know what is important to them and that's another thing, you know, one of the things I do like to do is take what's going on in the agricultural industry and at that particular time and try and explain to city people or, you know, I take my job as, as promoting agriculture really, really seriously. Uh, and when those uh, Peter, that Peter crew started getting, you know, did that farm maps thing where people were storming onto people's farms and, and I got really angry with that. I was driving to Perth and I was listening to it on the radio and I kept getting quicker and quicker and quicker in the car because I was getting angrier and angrier and I thought, I have got to do something about this. So that's when I wrote Starting From Now. Um, and that was very interesting because I wrote it all from a farming point of view. You know, the, the Peter people didn't rate, their story didn't rate. And, um, and yet I had a journalist, Zara, that was saying, you know, I want to tell both sides of the story. And I wasn't doing that very well. So I had to, my publisher said to me, you know, you need to, you need to loosen this up a little bit, soften it a little bit, Fleur. You've just gone so hard against uh against the peter crew uh and yeah so we went in we did that and i I think it still sort of came out on top with the farmers sort of going you know (laughs) we don't like what you're doing but uh yeah it was it was trying to find that balance to make it to not anger either side i guess Mm -hmm. but to make people aware that what people are doing by storming onto people's farms and and compromising biosecurity and you know all and that these are people's homes yeah, that message, I hope that that message got across loud and clear. How cool is that, that you can use this creative vehicle as a way of advocating for things as well and for getting messages across and for it's, it's, a, it's such a cool way of presenting a point of view and a different point of view and challenging point of, points of view. Yeah, possibly. and doing it through uh, having a journalist as a character, she's the best, she's the best person to do that. So, yeah, and I, I hope it worked well, but uh, I think it's really important to be able to take a, a world that I know into other people's lounge rooms or, you know, their verandas, wherever they sit and read, because you know, there are plenty of people that will never, ever get to experience, 
you know, little things like that, that we take for granted, you know, like the sun coming up in the morning and those little dew drops and the whole paddock looking like it's diamonds shining. And then you've got the, the you've got the crappy stuff, you know, the dead cow out in the middle of the dam that you've got to swim out and put a chain around to drag it out of the dam, you know. No, there's very few people, you know, it's only going to be farmers that have ever experienced that. Mm, and so you're, you're giving city people the opportunity to have a taste of that and to see that and to feel that. And even the way you described that then was so descriptive, you sort of get the image of it, you know, and that's what the books do. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's such, it's so cool. It's, it's very important work as well. So, and so um, I, remember, I was just thinking too, I remember that you did the, I think it was the 52, you featured. Oh, yeah, yeah, the um, year of the farmer, 52 yeah. blogs over, uh, 52 farmers over 52 weeks. Yeah, yes. I think I remember that you got in touch with. I think I was one of them for that when you did that years ago. I remember. Yeah, that was so long ago. I, yeah. I've got, and so much has happened since then. I can't even remember. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, it's quite possibly years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. And uh, so obviously, you know, this is it's a passion of yours to advocate for women in rural Australia. And, and I would love to ask you more about your work founding the organisation DB Assist. So, Tell us about how that came about and what sort of led to that. And, and obviously that's a, such an important organisation that's doing such fabulous work, which I, I know you said you're not sort of actually part of it now, but tell us about how that came about and where that was founded and how long has that been going for? So 2017, I took the idea to the uh, Rural Women's Award and um, I came runner-up for that and I just sort of felt that it was too important not to do. So what... DVSC, it used to be called Breaking the Silence, and there was a really, um, there was a very strong meaning behind that name. So I lived with domestic violence for quite a long period of time, and uh, it wasn't physical, but it was it was mental and um, and a lot of other stuff that that wasn't physical. And that was the reason behind Breaking the Silence. You know, we wanted to let people know that it didn't, it, you know, what the ads portray, you know, in on the TV with a woman cowering in the corner with a guy, you know, shadowing over the top of her with a raised fist isn't just, yes, it is domestic violence, but it's not the only part of it. So that was the reason behind the name. Um, and I put a lot of my own money into it to get it started. So... I wanted to collate all the services in each town into one area because I went through this time and I wasn't looking for me, but I went through this time where I was Googling services in um, that would help support people with domestic violence in Esperance. And it took me a half an hour to get through to something that would be at least half useful. And in the end, that was in Kalgoorlie, which is five hours away. It took me, I don't know, six or eight clicks to actually get there. And then it said, contact the office, contact the office during office hours, which, you know, a load of crap because, you know, domestic violence doesn't, uh, isn't curtailed to, to office hours. So I wanted to bring all of those services into one area. And then I wanted to, um, so it was easy to see. So there would be, there's an icon that will say everyday necessities, crisis housing, counselling, you know, whatever, and you could choose what you wanted. All the images were really low res, so they would load quickly in um, really internet-challenged areas and, you know, they could get the information they needed then and there on the spot because if you are suddenly making that choice that you need help um, and you have to, you've got someone banging on the door behind you or you've only got five minutes until he or she comes home again, 
you need to have access to this sort of stuff at your fingertips right then and there because that braveness to make that choice disappears very, very quickly. Um, so if you've got that information, hopefully you'll still keep making the choice you want to make. So then I wanted to put counsellors into every town that I came across. So I wanted to do this for nationwide. There's, there's nothing like DV Assist in Australia at the moment because it's only focused for rural people. So we have so many different um, different issues that we have to deal with to compare to our city cousins. You know, we've got our geographical isolation, which, you know, can be enhanced if somebody takes the keys out of the car and you can't go somebody where, somewhere. You've got, um, you've got guns, which we have to have because they're part of our toolbox, um, you know, but they're easily accessible. Uh, we've got big machinery that can be used as weapons if needed. Um, so uh, they are different. And uh, so then I wanted to put counsellors into every town that I came across that didn't have services in it because I knew that we would find that. And then I realised that there's going to be heaps of people that don't want to live in Aspirants or Marble Bar or, you know, wherever because it's taken them out of their area that they're comfortable in, like as in for counsellors. So then I thought, well, how do we access that? How do we access counselling services to make it easy for people from the safety of their own home when they are safe? You know, that's a really important thing too is when they are safe. So we, I organised um, or came up with the idea of online counselling counseling and also online chat through the website so I yeah I got Esperance and Albany up and going and then I realized that I didn't have enough money of my own to take this statewide let alone nationwide and I met up with a fellow called Peter Fitzpatrick who mentored me for a little while and we went to Canberra and I it was funny Peter was with me for every meeting except this particular one he had a teleconference that he couldn't sit in and the meeting with um, Minister Hunt and that was where we got the money from. We got a, a two, you know, just an under under three million dollar grant to access um, to put these pilot towns up. And now that so we had sixteen pilot towns up there. Uh, and now I don't know how many they've got up there now. A lot, and it's covering most of WA. Um, so which is fantastic. But like I said, I stepped away a little while ago because it's got bigger than what I'm capable of and, and my job is to write books. So um, it's, I wanted to make a difference to one person and I'd like to think we've done that and if we've done that then we've achieved what I set out to do. Oh, it sounds like you made a difference to hundreds, possibly thousands of people. Like it's that just sounds so incredible. There's so much to it, isn't there, when you think about why someone gets in that situation, why they can't get out of that situation. There's still, I feel like there's still in, in general in society, there's a lot of misunderstanding about, you know, I was just reading, it just reminded me, I was reading a post the other day about like, you know, people still say, oh, why didn't she just leave? You know, like that sort of stuff. Like I feel like there's still so much that we don't understand. And, and the more that we can make it easy for women, easier to access the services, surely that's going to help. For, and as you say, like you having that inside knowledge of the, the limitations like, and then it's not just as easy as jumping in the car and going to the town miles away. And if it's not easily accessible, it's just so, so hard. So what an incredible service this is and what a difference it must be making. So it takes on average a seven, seven times for people to leave before they actually leave for good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I must have left more than that in my head when I when I chose to leave. Um, and so when I left, I left and, and that was it. That was done. It was gone. I'd already made my choice. Um, but it was, 
yeah, I, I don't I don't know how many uh, phone calls they get through um, through the counselling services now, but you know. It, when I was there, we were, I, it broke my heart with the amount that we were getting because I knew that this service was needed, but I, but I didn't realise how many people would start to call. Mm. Yeah, incredible. So to, to sort of take a step back, like you know, I always sort of like to look at the like, well, why is this happening so much, and and you know, what's what's going on with? I mean, also, I'd like to. Know, I know you did say men and women, but is it? It is mostly women that are the victims of domestic violence. Is that right? A lot of men that you don't realise because men don't talk about it because right. that's so um, non-masculine, you know. Sure. Um, and I was asked the question the other day. So, so yes, and a lot of men are victims. Oh, you don't use the word victims. I get in trouble. Oh, don't you? Sometimes. No, I get into, I get into trouble. Uh, but person using violence and person. I'm not sure. Anyway. You know, that's so important. I must say, like, it, I know how important that is, something as as someone who's lost a parent to suicide, it really, when people say committed suicide, it really triggers me because we shouldn't use that term anymore either. It should be died by suicide or t- took their life or whatever. So I, I completely understand how important that is and how easy it is to say it the wrong way as well. But, yeah, it's really important. Yeah, so there are a lot of guys that are still living on farms that are or in country towns that are experiencing violence. And, and it doesn't, see, girls don't, girls don't, act, very rarely do girls hit, but they do the mental stuff. And that's where that, and like I just said before, this is where there is so much more to domestic violence than what people understand. I was, I was speaking at um, an Order of Australia alumni event the other day, and there was a guy that used to be in politics there, and he asked me whether I felt that the, um, that, the government had a responsibility to fix this. And I said, well, I don't understand how they can. Yes, Mm. they have a responsibility to supply money for the services that are required afterwards, but they do not go into people's homes. You know, Scott Morrison or Greg Hunt or anybody do not go into people's homes and wag their finger and go, please don't do that. That's not right. You know, this is, and I I believe this is probably, probably a very simplistic view, but I believe that the reason that we have the trouble that we have today is because we have a complete lack of respect for other people and for ourselves. Mm. Um, so the and when I say for ourselves, I'm meaning the fact that you know people are abusing alcohol, they're abusing drugs, which then causes them to react in a different way. So we just have a complete lack of respect and. Again, I'll say that that's a simplistic view and I hope I don't anger too many people by saying that. But I, I just think if we, could, if we could treat everybody the way that we wanted to be treated, we would not have this problem. And we have a cycle that we can't break. We need to somehow get into the schools and speak to the kids and break the cycle back then or when they are small to be able to, um, to, be able to make a difference. But I don't believe that by putting the blame and politicising these issues and then placing the blame at the government's feet is at all helpful. Yeah, I, I agree and I feel it's it's similar to, well, I mean, it's all related to mental health as well, I would assume, that there's a lot of mental health issues tied up with someone who ends up being a, a domestically violent person or, or a, someone who is domestically abused. Um, but... We often, there's all this sort of emphasis on we just need more services and we just need support and we just need all this, but it's like, well, what, 
maybe we need to take a step back and think about why is it happening in the first place? Like why are people so miserable from a mental health perspective and, and suffering so much? And, well, the other, and that's right. But the other thought, the other process is as well, is we can throw as much money at these services as what we like, but people have to access them. And those, that access is really hard. There is a huge amount of shame with domestic violence, as I'm assuming there probably would be with something like suicide um, and or, or a mental health issue to stop people from, you know, dying by suicide. So I, you know, it is so, it is such an um, intricate issue. There are so many small little things in there that people, unless they've experienced it or work in the industry, don't know. Uh, and I guess that's where I would like to, you know, to raise awareness. And I do have some fairly strong views about um, the way that the government uh, is uh, treated uh, for a word, you know, with this because it is not the government's fault, you know. And it is also not the fault of the person that's living in that situation that they can't leave. You know, have you thought about the fact that, one, they don't have any money, two, they've got nowhere to go, perhaps they've got no family in the state, um, perhaps the person using violence has threatened. Um, and look, I'm a reasonably intelligent woman and I hear this so often. There's a... Um, so many people say I am a reasonably intelligent woman but I have been put in this situation that I never thought I would get into and it, I, I liken it to the fact that when floodwaters come down the creek, they only ever come down as a trickle. That's how they start. Mm -hmm. And you don't know that your confidence is being eroded, that this is actually, you suddenly believe that what you're living, that the changes are so small over time that what, when you get to the end point, you don't actually realise how you've got there and it's so normalised, well, why would you change anything? You might, I know in my situation I felt, I just knew that I was really unhappy. I knew my kids disappeared into their bedroom um, whenever um, this person came home I um, and they would put the headphones in and they would just go. Um, and, you know, that was normal. It just seemed to be normal. And yet when I stopped and I thought about it, that wasn't how I grew up. And it wasn't until I went to a counsellor and I said, I need you to help me change because I can't live like this any longer. And she said, what's happening? And she, I told her and she showed me um, a circle of all these different types of domestic violence. And out of all of I think there was 13 or 14 of them there, I was experiencing 10 of them. Mm. Um, so you, it's so normalised when you're in the situation, you don't know. Mm. And I think even the fact that we probably the, the thinking is that oh, it's just the violence, you know, it's just the it's just the hitting or the or that. But there's as you said, there's 13 things that can be domestic violence that most people wouldn't even well, a lot of people unless you're in that. And as you say, even when you're in it, you don't realise that that is domestic violence necessarily, and that you are you know in that situation. And there's probably more now, you know. People have gone to using pets as weapons against their partners. Um, you know, yeah, it, it, it defies belief some things that happens, but it's what happens and people are creative. Yes, absolutely. And the thing is, it's these conversations like this and the awareness and the work that you're doing that is so, so important because it is part of it. As you said, there's lots of dimensions, there's so many elements, but part of it is 
surely raising awareness and just having more and more people have an understanding of what is going on and, and what it is and what it looks like yes. and then supporting everybody. To, like I, My mind often goes like, well, why? Why are the, the men, by and large, why are the women? Like why do they get to that point where they are doing these things, like where they're being the abusers? Because, And this is what we do with, you know, when it comes to a lot of um issues like if there's rape or anything like that you know we, we've spent so long focusing on the woman and how she should protect herself but we should be looking at why the men are doing the you know in the first place why are they getting to that point why are they taking these actions and sometimes I feel like that's still missing a lot but I'd love to see what you think about that well that's the cycle that I talk yes. about you know that is if people grow up with it they think that it's normal and um that and again so my I, I guess part of the other reason I left was I saw my kids starting to treat me the way that I was being treated and I didn't want that for them in in future relationships so yeah it it is about a cycle it's about what they've experienced some of it is genetic and that is that there is no studies to or that I'm aware of to prove that Mm -hmm. but you what so some of it's learnt behavior but some of it is um I think some of it just comes through because some people are just mean, uh, some people aren't, um, and I think, you know, there is a genetic component to it as well. And I hope, again, I don't anger anybody in saying that, you know, I've probably been more outspoken in this interview than what I've ever been before. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess just seeing what I've seen and being a normal lay person on the ground, that's that's what I see. Oh, and, and I think with your experience personally and in the work that you do I mean it's yeah it's I don't think it's people can take it however they want but it's your thoughts and it's your opinion and it's your what your perspective is and I think we have to all respect that the um the one thing that does frustrate me a little bit when we're talking about services and and that type of thing people accessing them Mm-hmm. We often go to the service providers in the town and talk to the service providers about what uh, they can offer people. We're not getting out and talking to the to the women and the men. So I, what I would like to do, and I, I haven't had this opportunity for a while, but I want to go and talk to the women's days about this and and you know the field days, and say you know these are the services that are here for you if that's what you need. We had a um, had a girl come down. Like, I'm the secretary for the Agricultural Society, and we run a two day agricultural show down here. And I had this amazing woman come down and talk about because I'm not actually involved in DB Assist anymore. I was looking for another cause because you know I want to save the world. And um, and there was this big talk about prostate cancer and how you know so many farmers don't you know go and get checked. They put it aside. They're, so Melissa walked into. I organised this big men's health. Um, night we had Glenn Jakovich famous footballer come down and chat and anyway Melissa um, is from the restorative sexual health clinic and her opening line was there was all these fellas in the room very few girls and she said one out of four of your fellas cocks don't work (laughs) so you can imagine how that went down in a room full of farmers that's the sort of stuff I want to go and do and talk to people about domestic violence yeah. She had such an impact on those men. Yeah. And I know for a fact after that there was um, a lot of contact with her afterwards and I want to do the same thing. You know, that's um, that's a really 
just to get people talking and opening conversations. You know, we're not going to make any difference unless we talk about it. Mm. It's there's so many parallels with the mental health space to me. It's the same thing. Like we just need yeah. to be getting people talking about it and, and addressing it at the at the people level rather than all the focus. It seems to me like often the, all the focus goes to the services, which we need yep. as well. But there's a whole other part to it and more to it. Absolutely. So it's the human side that we can make a difference in. The services are always going to be there, but it's the human side. And when I first started DVSS, that was what I wanted. It had a heart. And it had a, um, and it's had to go. It's had to change from that a little bit because it's not run out of my office anymore, you know. But it had a heart, and and to me, it's the people that matter. It's making the difference to the people that are having the problems and, and needing help. That's and that's what I. That's where I. That they're the people that I want to talk to. Mm. Oh, Flair, it's so amazing the work that you've done and that you're doing and the passion that you have for it. And I can so understand why it's such important work and. It's just we just need more and more of it. So thank you for sharing so honestly and openly with us today. It's been so awesome. Yeah, I haven't done that before. <laughs> oh, well, I love it. It's just like bring it on. Bring on the openness and honesty. It's so That's what's needed. You know, the more we can have real, raw, open conversations about all these really challenging topics, it's it's just that the more helpful it is for everybody. And, and often it's the stuff that people shy away from. And like you, even you've said, like, oh, I don't usually, because it's hard to talk about this stuff. And, and as humans, we struggle to sit with the difficult emotions and the difficult bits and the, and the uncomfortable things that we need to talk about. So, Well, and the other thing is too um, with this is that, you know, unless you've got a police report against uh, that person that's using violence, it's he said, she said. And that's a really tricky thing to handle in a country town. Oh, yes. Especially I can imagine there'd be so many examples where no one else would have any idea what's going on. And there's someone of standing in the community even. You know, there's all sorts of variables, isn't there, of what person might be like and how they're known. So I know we've gone over time, but can I just do one thing for all of your listeners? Yes. Go for it. There's no time to do it. I want you yes. to, this is very unorthodox, but I want you to shut your eyes. Okay. And I want you to imagine the most remote place that you have ever been to where there is no lights, there is no sounds of cars, there's nothing, and then there is a punch or a scream, but there's nobody around, nobody hears. So just open your eyes now. And imagine the fear that can happen there with knowing that your neighbours are 5, 10, 100 kilometres away. Mm. Yeah, I've got shivers. Like it's just the, such a scary feeling, isn't it? And, and you know, it's, it's a worry to think how many women are experiencing that right now. Yep, and men, we got, we're, and the kids. And and the kids. And I think we forget kids. We do forget kids in all of this as well because they are, whether they're, whether they're experiencing it as well, however, they're living in the house and they're affected. So, Fleur, tell us then, given we've just done that exercise and for some people there might be some women who've just gone, holy crap, that is me, um, that's me right now, and it might be, or you know someone, maybe you do have an inkling that there's someone that you know. What's... What would be that? Like, what's some steps that they could take, or something that they can do, like just in that immediate, like if they realise, oh, yeah. So DVC, the counselling services are only available for WA, but the website is available for anybody, 
And on that website, there is all sorts of things that you can put into your toolkit. There's, there is a quiz for people that are not sure if they're experiencing domestic violence. You can go and do that and then it will give you some options at the end of it all. There is information there for family and friends who have got a pro- thinking that there is a problem with one of their loved ones um, and how to help. Like that website is the most comprehensive website with all of this information that there is in Australia. So that's um, dvsis.org.au. Um, so go there and have a look and you know if you again if you're in a crisis you've got to call triple zero um, and if you um, 1-800-RESPECT would be the others for um, you know for outside WA. I love that it's got information there for if you are worried about someone too because I think that can often be the challenges like we don't know we don't know what to do yeah and that's again again that's something else I'll say that um, people aren't uh, people will not make a choice until they are ready because once those words come out of your mouth, I'm leaving or I'm unhappy or something, you can't take them back. Mm. So that's one of the, um, you've, you, ha- and that's why people, I guess, leave seven times on an average before they, before they um, actually do leave for good. So, yeah, you can't take those things back. So you have to be sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Fleur, I mean, it's just been, I have really got a lot out of this conversation. It's something I feel really passionately about this topic as well. Actually, randomly, my gorgeous grandmother back in the days in Ballarat set up a home for girls. Um, I forget what it's called now. She won an OAM for it as well. So, and, and did a lot of great work in this area for women in, in parole or trying to get out of, you know, challenging situations and all that kind of thing. And I must apologise, sir, if I've got the wording wrong because I do know how important that is and, I, and I'm, I'm aware of that and sensitive to that too in, in the terms that we use to describe these situations. Having my, my own experience in the mental health space, I do know that's really important and I apologise if I have, um, you know, said it incorrectly, but I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've got so much out of it myself and I think it's a really powerful conversation that people need to hear. And I know that... It's really at the moment for you about, you know, getting the book out into the world. But I really think, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier about getting to know the author and knowing you and knowing these passions behind the books that you write and all of that is just so incredible and so inspiring. And I'm sure that people are going to want to go and read the book now. (laughs) Well, if if someone would like to buy Deception Creek for a Christmas present for their loved one, I'd love that. I would very much love that. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I want to go and read all 18 of them now. I'm going to go back and start, you know, getting into the, uh, the whole, all of them. So I'm looking forward to getting it. I've actually got a copy already, which I'm very excited about. And, yes, go and buy it for friends and family. And, you know, follow up on all the things that Fleur's been talking about today as well. If there's, if you've got any concerns or any worries or, you know, you feel like you need to take some action, DV Assist is there online for anyone. And in WA, you can access the services. And, yeah, hopefully it's empowered you to think about what you can do and, and take some steps if you need to. And, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Fleur. It's been, yeah, really moving and... I think a very powerful conversation that people are going to get a lot out of. So thank you so much. Thank you for being here. And where can we, do we just go online to your website to buy the book and and where else is it? Uh, Well, thank you for having me to begin with. And um, yeah, no, like if you haven't got a bookshop near you, um, Booktopia or, um, you know, any of the online bookstores, you can buy it from. It's on audio. And yeah, if you wanted a, um, you can um, follow me on Instagram at Fleur McDonald Author or Facebook, I think. And um, 
oh, there's another handle I've got for Instagram. Oh, so farming and stuff because that's so different to writing. I've got a different Insta handle, which is the dot roaming writer. Um, so that's all my farming and my travels when I do research. But I promise I won't. Um, I won't put photos up of the roast that I that I buried. Um, but yeah, that's all my research on the roaming dot writer. But yeah, and if you want a book signed, you can certainly contact me through my website, and I'll send you an in, invoice and sign it and send it off in the mail. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Fleur. It's been just lovely chatting and thank you so much for your time and thank you listeners. See you guys.